one, two, five, nine. Father, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell? So if we are shaped and formed in community and in community is the way that we like reach toward the good more, I, I don't know, more accurately, more in a more holy way, we are like sanctified in this way. What do we, how do we discern which communities are the communities that are actually growing us toward righteousness? Well, I think that, um, I think if I were to be very positive, and I'm not usually am, I think every community has something of that in them. Hmm. This is not meant to like, you know, smooth over like communities who maybe have only a tiny, tiny bit of that in them. <laughs> sure, right? sure. But like, I think that I think that if I was to be really generous, I think that every community has um, the seeds of that in some way, you know, kind of within them. I, at my most like, I don't know, I guess at my most um, optimistic, you know, I, I tend to think that human beings um, and the structures of human existence and uh, how we are and how we form ourselves and or, or how we are formed and stuff like that, I tend to think that that's meant to be that way, right? Like I tend to think that um, a sign of fallenness is not that we change, right? Like, a sign of fallenness is not that we um, 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 cannot, that we're finite and, and that therefore our knowledge and vision is limited, right? Um, and so because of that, like, I tend to, at my most optimistic, have a, a pretty positive view of just about, you know, just about any kind of community that people find themselves being formed in. But what I really mean by that is I think that every human being, because we are formed by communities and because we are formed by a lot of communities, mm -hmm. right? Like every human being has the potential to come to know, respond to the call, however you want to put it, to um, uh, become better and see what is good more clearly and enmesh themselves in more uh, better and full forms of community. Um, and so how do we do that? Well, I think we do that by being attentive, by um, practicing, um, uh, by practicing being a person who uh, gives and receives rather than just a sort of acted upon, right? Like if Hannah Arendt were here, Hannah Arendt, do you, do you know who Hannah Arendt is? I you do. Hannah Arendt is great. Hannah Arendt, <laughs> listeners, 20th century, um, uh, a political philosopher. Um, Hannah Arendt would say, because Hannah Arendt has this view of evil as banal, right? Yeah. That, that evil, evil isn't, it's not that evil isn't scary or terrible, but that evil is not um, like Sauron. <laughs> Right. <laughs> you know, it's it instead looks a little bit more like um, people just kind of doing stuff. Yeah. Without, and she's writing this as she yeah. reflects on um, the Nuremberg trials. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so she's reflecting on Eichmann, a uh, 
a, a, a Nazi, basically a Nazi bureaucrat, mm-hmm. you know, just a, 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 a per- he didn't he didn't shoot a bunch of people he, he didn't do he didn't do typically evil nazi things that we imagine what he did was as far as eitman was concerned what he did was is he went into his office and he filled out some paperwork and he hung out by the water cooler and talked to his talked to his fellow co-workers about their kids and filled out some more paperwork and went home and because he did all of that for however many years he was a nazi bureaucrat Millions and millions of people died. Yeah. Right. And and Hannah Arendt comes to, I think, I think thoughtful conclusions about how how we can counter evil. And if this is what the nature of evil is, then we counter evil by being um, engaged people. By by being people who do not simply just do their job but who are people who recognize that that our, our personhood is more than just being a cog, more than just doing their job, right? Um, if she, uh, she didn't say it, I don't think, in this way, but it, in some ways it's, a, it's an interesting critique of like professionalism, hmm. right? Like a professional, we, we create professionalism as a, categor- as, a, as a category of reflection, be, uh, ultimately, because we we don't work, we work under the assumption that people are not just going to be good to each other, and so professionalism is sort of a safety net. Uh, if we can if we can be professional with each other, then we can not hurt each other and do our task. Yeah, it's a way of setting order. setting standards that we can abide by so that we can accomplish goals. Yeah, exactly the. I'm not saying professionalism is bad. What I'm saying is it's it's the same kind of a thing or should be a proper ordering of it, I think, should be similar to how we like, say, understand the Sabbath. People are not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for people. Um, Professionalism is not the end all be all. Professionalism is a tool we use to not just accomplish tasks, but to accomplish tasks well together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, frankly, a a a perhaps a a morally virtuous person, if we can use virtue for a second, is always going beyond professionalism. Yeah, I buy that. You see what I mean? Like a professional, uh, a a professional relationship between, say, a boss and an employee can be a trusting relationship. Right. Like, like if my bo- if if I work for a company and my boss is professional towards me, what that means is, is that I can trust that my boss will abide by certain practical standards of action and behavior and that I can trust that. That means that I can trust that if I do something bad, my boss, being a good professional, will probably fire me. <laughs> but that also yeah. means that if I do something um uh, if I do my job well, if I do my job um, better than well, that might mean that my very professional boss, um, within the confines of being professional, will not only let me keep my job, but might promote me or might increase my pay. That's a, a super duper simple way of talking about it. But like, I think that's the that's the point of what professionalism should be. A virtuous person, a, a virtuous boss, a boss who wants to, who is trying to be good, goes beyond professionalism, not by like 
breaking professional rules, but by recognizing that those rules are meant to make good things happen. Mm. Right. And so uh, and so a professional boss might fire somebody for doing a bad job. But a boss who is who who is professional, but is going beyond that might be interested in why that person did not do a good job today. Right. You know, and might be like, what's going on? You know, what's happening? Might be thoughtful about the kind of stuff we're producing. I think that like this way of thinking, like following Hannah Arendt, I think is a really easy, good, like first step towards um, discovering the good and, and, and being critical of our communities and, and thinking through, you know, uh, what kind, if we're in a community that is no good, what we can do to get beyond that. And, and it's about engaging our lives and our minds and our beings sort of in the world and in what we're doing. Now, sometimes that's impossible, and that's be in that's because of oppression or marginalization or just super toxicity, you know. And I recognize that, but like I think the common task that we might have before us is to always be more engaged, and to help free mm-hmm. people to be more engaged, you know, free, being freed so that we can continue to take the world into ourselves in a critical way rather than just be products of the world. I'll say one more thing and I'll get off this. This is why it became popular in 19th century and sort of early 20th century liberal theology to really think about the capacities of human beings hmm. and, and to really reflect on things like human beings' vocations and human beings values and 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 the way in which we are active participants right the insight that that this tradition of thinking recognized is that um in order for us to be good together in order for us to not just love god and love each other but to like be citizens of the world if you might say okay. is is to is to be very thoughtful about ourselves as um, as as active, creative people. Hannah Arendt calls that the political. Yeah. That, um, that this is this is just what it means to be political beings. To be political beings is to be beings who are making things in the world. Yeah. And I think that that is very good. And I think that's like the first way of moving forward. Yeah. I like all that. I think I follow all that. I think that, um, you know, kind of a la the reaching for the sovereign in the time of crisis, there you find in like more, um, uh, the word that I want to say is fascistic, but I I don't know that it is necessarily limited to fascism. But I think you find in um, groups that are very uncomfortable with this like community work that, what they want is a litmus test for saying whether one group is bad or not. And if you have been shaped by this group, then you must be bad. I, like, I think we find that with in the UMC right now with conservatives who think that there are particular conferences or particular churches or particular seminaries that are forming people badly because they're all these people are all part of these these groups that are evil, uh, as in they uh, affirm people who are on in the LGBTQ world. And I what I want, what I want is a like, 
a, a litmus test. I do. I want like a sovereign for deciding whether a group is bad or not. I want to be able to like look at their fruits or look at this or that. But I think that, but I think that you do come back to that. Well, we have to weigh all of it. You know, we have to weigh what they think and, and what are the consequences of that way of thinking, how we actually see them behaving together, what is good and what is bad. Cause I think you're right. I think every community, regardless of how toxic it is, does do that good thing of fulfilling within us that need to connect to another person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is why we will fight to stay in toxic communities, right? Because we don't know where else we will be connected and loved in that way. Even if like it is only a sliver of what love what love could look like, we're still afraid of losing that. But I don't think there's a litmus test. And I think when we, I think this is something you find amongst liberals as well, is they want you to pass the set of tests to see whether this community is toxic or not, or whether you're anti-racist enough, or whether you're feminist enough, or whether you're XYZ thing enough. And I also find that to be like that, that longing for a litmus test is the same problem. It's searching for the sovereign in, in this way of deciding things. When really how we see evil functioning and how we see um really like how we see malformation happening is it's not as obvious and as apparent no i think that like i like as you said we're all shaped by different communities and i think many of us share communities that uh, that all of them have patriarchy in them and that all of them have um, homophobia in them and all of them have white supremacy in them. And so like we're getting these different things reinforced in different ways by that. And that's why um, I think I was talking about this with Annie when I interviewed her over the summer, um, Annie Britton, who's part of church within a church. Uh, and I, and like, no, it was when we were talking with Chet, and I don't remember who I was interviewing Chet with. But to talk about, um, do we find more holiness in queer spaces? Mm-hmm. Um, and Chet was very quick to say, like, but but the church has always been queer. Like, there's always been queerness there. Yep. But I think when you remove um, anything other than, like, the internalized homophobia, then you get to be shaped by that group in that way that then allows you to go back into another, sh- another space and combat the homophobia phobia in that space you know i do um yeah i think it's all just a lot more fluid than people are maybe willing to consider at face value and everything we just talked about is going to sound complicated (laughs) to Mm -hmm. somebody who's trying like for the first time to see if a community is for them or not or a community is like good in some real way to them or not um and so like i don't like what's the first step toward helping people have this kind of complicated understanding so we're not so much outrage culture but instead we are able to like approach new groups with um with an honesty and and the reason i ask this is because the i'm thinking about my time in ministry and uh, it was clear that to some people in my church, I was from a different group that had malformed me into being this weird activist. And that's not what the group I was in needed. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we can like honestly talk about these dynamics in order to connect better with the people that we're ministering to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have two thoughts. I have a practical thought and I have a theological thought. I think the practical thought is, uh, I I think you do it by um, 
doing the hard work of integrating yourself in the community. Mm. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I think you, I think you integrate, I think we'll stick with pastors for a second. I think pastors integrate themselves, the community. This is a throwback from earlier episodes. We talk about it sometimes. They integrate themselves in the community, not by asking the community's permission, but I really don't think you're supposed to ask their permission because nine out of 10 times they'll say no. Um, You, (laughs) you do it by bearing burdens in the community. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's going to sound weird, and I maybe mean it to sound a little provocative. You do it by suffering for the community, not by taking abuse. Right. Not by taking abuse, but by suffering for it. Communities are formed in human pain. I think that's true. I do, too. I, I, and I don't think that's weird and morbid. I think that's, I think that's sort of how it works for all of us, right? We we begin with a common experience, and the most common human experience is not love; it's pain. Not everybody is loved. Yeah, everybody feels pain, though, <laughs> right? And I think that that's how you do it. I think that pastors and and anybody become enmeshed in the community by submitting, by submitting to suffering and and bearing the burdens of pain. And when people in the community see somebody do that, that I have found in my experience that that is, that's the, that's the arresting thing about it. That's what stops, I think, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Where they go, this person might be all in. Yeah. You know, I'm going to quote the Bible again. Do it. I can't believe it. Um, uh. I'm going to paraphrase it though, because I don't quite have it have it down very good. Um, man, anybody would lay down their life for a friend. Yeah. But but who would do that for an enemy? Who would do that for somebody on the outside? Well, I think that's sort of part of it, right? Like, if, if we want to say part of Jesus's sort of. Part, part of the salvific aspect of Jesus' incarnation is in his suffering, which I think a lot of people don't want to say. I think that they are not thinking through what suffering is and, mm. and what suffering can do. It's not that I think suffering can be redemptive, but suffering can be about solidarity. Yeah, yeah. And, and that the Son of God is in pain along with two other human beings on the crosses next to him who are in pain, I think is worthy enough to welcome God into our community. Right. Like, like that's, that's a, I'm riffing a little bit, but I think that's, I think practically that's very important is, is to, is to recognize that in order to like be a part of this community, you have to serve it. Now here is the theological element I did not, this is in BART, which frustrates me, (laughs) but I also discovered it in a Scottish theologian named Thomas uh, Erskine. And so, but we'll stick with BART. When BART is at his most interesting, he is, he is um, riffing like a madman on the incarnation. (laughs) I always find that to be his most interesting. That's when he's, that's when he says things like in our flesh, God knows himself. Mm-hmm. Um, which I which I find really great, but but Bart says, um, you know, uh, one of the Bart spends a lot of time talking about the obedience of Jesus, 
and the and the submission of Jesus to the will of the Father, and um, and and to to the sort of the the um, uh, activity of salvation and bringing about the kingdom. Jesus in Bart is meek and submissive and 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 courageous, sure, but but meek and submissive towards God, you know, and and is and is ready as the son to fulfill the father's will. And, uh, and Bart jumps in and says, this is not subordinationism. Okay. But it surely sounds like it. So you're going to have to convince me. <laughs> it, it might be subordinate. It, it, Bart might still fail the subordinationist test. Don't get me wrong, but Bart has an interesting reason why he doesn't think it's subordinationism. He goes, this is not subordinationism because if we take the incarnation seriously, and if we take the equality of persons seriously, this means that God, the divine, the divine life, is essentially obedient. Hmm. That divinity is submissive. Interesting. That divinity makes space, follows. Now, that's fascinating. Like Bart, Bart, Bart's like, yeah, we would have to assume that. If what the church says about Jesus is correct, then that means God is fully God when God submits. Just like when God commands, you know, Bart's Bart is ve- Bart is Bart, right? Like <laughs> Bart is Bart is Bart. Um, there are lots of reasons to be grumpy with Bart, but I maintain that Bart wrote so much and, frankly, was so smart that everybody can find a passage in Bart that makes them go, "Interesting. <laughs> what could that mean?" Right? I think yeah. that, but I think this might be one of Bart's most radical things he says. That that the essence that that you know because of the incar- the logic of the Trinity and the logic of the incarnation teaches us that God is just as much God when God commands as He is when God submits. That God is just as much God when God um, uh, follows as He is when God leads. Yeah, I, I what I really like about that is that. It gives you this picture of God, almost in the same way that you see in, in Genesis 2 with God, like getting on God's hands and knees to to scoop up, you know, the dirt and the mud of the earth to make the first human. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's this God who is willing to interact and willing to, I don't know if learn is the right word, but experience um, and and yeah, yeah, I find that to be really profound. I mean, I keep on thinking about, um, or what the first thing that I thought about when you talked about this was what we talked about a couple episodes ago about um, the idea that like the the blueprint dies, you know, that like in salvation, the word goes forward to go ever more into the muck and the darkness of humanity, and then the spirit brings it all back up. Um I, like, I think that there is something there, there's um, a way that we can be molded as leaders with that, that like people, people understand us best and connect to us best when we encounter them 
in these places they did not expect us to go and be. And I think that's in suffering, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's why um, the person in seminary who said that they were going to keep a nine to five schedule <laughs> yeah. as, a, as a pastor, it's so ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, it is ludicrous. Because not only like does the church require you to do other things, right? But but suffering doesn't exclusively happen nine to five. Right. Yeah, yeah. I think it just, I think you're right in that like, earning trust with your community requires you to like get in amongst the community which will require suffering alongside the community and and sacrificing for the community and i think that's just part of the job mm-hmm. so um so then maybe my next question and this is something that that i've shared again is that like in the in the crisis moment while i was in ministry they all forgot the times that I had been suffering alongside them, right? Mm-hmm. They forgot the hospital visits. They forgot the hours I would spend with people. They forgot the funerals. They forgot the the sessions where I really just listened to them tell me important things they needed to be unburdened of. And I don't know that there's like a, a non-dickish way to be like, do you not remember <laughs> when I was here with you doing this thing? And I was hurt and defensive and, and would not have had the presence of mind to kind of call those things to their attention. Yeah. What do you do when people forget that you have done that work already? Is there anything to be done? Well, I remind them. <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you I, uh, you're I not do. afraid I, of them. <laughs> I'm not afraid of them at all. Um, and and also, um, they're wrong, right? You they know, are. At, they're yeah. wrong. Um, and in moments like that, you have to remind them. I think so. Like, I understand why. You, I understand exactly what you're saying. This isn't like an, an admonishment against you and and your right. ministry. I, you know, I think the world of you and your ministry. I think that. Um, uh, if you have suffered for a community and the community, I have two thoughts. Here's the first thought. If you suffer the community and the community and parts of the community still reject you, uh, they don't get to do that. Communities, uh, <laughs> communities are formed in practice and in action and, and stuff like that. And so for somebody to just be like, no, you're still not a part of it when you have contributed materially and spiritually to the community and have suffered for the community, you, I think anybody can, can get up and say, that is simply not true. This is my community too. Mm. This Mm. is it. I, my blood and my sweat and my, my tears, my life is here. Yeah. This is mine. That doesn't mean that I get a say over your say. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't mean that you, um, that that I'm in charge and you're not. But what it might mean is is that all communities are live and die based on mutual times of submission and leadership. I mm. don't think uh, this is why I'm not against the word submission. Right? Like, I in order for relationships to be real, we all have to submit to each other. We all have to navigate that that artistically. I'm not saying we submit to the same person every single time. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we it, it is it is a part of loving each other that we submit. And Bart teaches us that submission is truly divine. That's it's not that it's not that submission is an arbitrary rule. It's that God submits. 
as well as leads. And and that part, and I think this is true. I think Bart's right. I think I think that Bart's right in our, my reflection on my loving relationships with my family and 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 in times in community. Right, like we've all submitted to each other, and we've all led each other. We've submitted. We've insisted. We have been the ones saying this is what we will do, and we have been followers, and we have to do that. And in moments where I think communities say. Mm, no, I don't care that you've done these things. You're still not a part of uh, of us. I think that in mom- I think that we have uh, some responsibility to say if this community can continue, you have to recognize that I'm a part of it. This yeah. is why in my opinion, the biggest scandal of the United Methodist Church is how much we use gay people. Not how much we've discriminated against them. It's how much we need them. How much we're so fine when, when, with, with saying, no, we don't support your lifestyle. We don't like who you are. We don't want you to preach. We will not marry you. But please continue to be the director of children's ministry. The please, director of music. Yeah. Please continue to play the organ. Please continue to visit old people and be a part of our hospitality team. What do you mean you're quitting? That's the biggest scandal. The biggest scandal is that we already know we need them. We already know they're a part of our community (laughs) because they've always been there and we don't care. That's the biggest scandal in my opinion. And so there's that. And then I guess my second thought is, is that eventually I think – oh, actually, this is really my second thought. I forget what I was about to say. I think that people uh, – the people. I'm going to make a judgment call on your church and church com- and community that you were a part of. They don't care about their community as much as they claim to. Hmm. I really think that – I think that um, – a lot of contemporary tribalism, if we're going to use that language, which I don't think we should. I think a lot of contemporary like expressions of like close knit communities and like inside outside kind of mentalities are pretty illusory. I think that most communities do not feel as strong of a sense of community as they claim they do. I think that, um, and that I think that that usually comes about when we ask people to suffer for each other. Mm. I think that if there is anything, if there's any truth to a Hauerwasian critique of liberalism, it's that. It's that part of what it means to be an American is to reject community. Yeah. Right. And so when when a Republican politician invokes small town America, it's a parlor trick. It's a prestidigitation. It, it, it's not real in the way they say it's real. Right. D- try that in small towns, man, the small, small town that I serve. Barbersville, Virginia has like 40 houses. 35 of them are the third house of people uh, uh, of people who live not in Barbersville. They right. just bought a shit ton of land. The other five are people who who moved here after they've retired from some other thing they used to do. And 
primarily love Barbersville because uh, they don't have to worry all that much about being a part of other towns. If I were to say, how can we serve Barbersville? And I've said that a crap ton. Everybody looks at me like I've got five heads. There is no serving this community. You know why? It's because Social Security serves this community. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's because it's because pensions serve this community, retirement funds, Wall Street. In the case of Barbersville, the Milwaukee Brewers serve this community because Larry Haney played for them. Like, 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 like nobody serves this community. Yeah. And I actually think that a lot of communities are like that. I, I think less and less people are thinking in those ways. Um, and so my, my understanding of the community you served that seemed to have forgotten all of the ways you suffered for them is mostly that they don't really care about the community anyway. It's not really about that. It's about them. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think maybe the more generous way to say it, um, I, I think you're true. I mean, I think that like, if we are being prophetic and naming the situation exactly as it is, I think that there's something very true about what you said. I also think they were exhausted from trying to maintain the community. And, and in the moment when um, they had the option to try something different that would change the community that they had and make their lives a little more difficult in the short, short term, but healthier in the long term, they just did not have the capacity at that time to see that what they were choosing was not going to be good for the whole community. They were making the choice of, you know, like what is going to... Um, make this conflict go away is uh, getting rid of the person who's causing conflict. And apparently I was that person. Now, like I, I will say that I think that there is a particular person who could have been handled differently in the church that would have changed how the church functioned. And, and if I had been older and wiser, maybe I would have had a better strategy for handling that person and that person's role in the community. But I also think that like, nobody had the capacity to do hard work in that moment. You know, I didn't have it. They didn't have it. My DS didn't have it. You know, nobody had the, had what we needed in that moment to remember the work that I had already done and to insist that like I could continue to do good work there, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think it's hard. You know, we talked about how the church likes to use gay people and I think the church likes to use women too. I mean, we know that like these two issues go hand in hand, right? As soon as you say that like gay people can't be ordained, you are two steps away from saying, well, you know, women really All women are gay. Yeah, I got you. (laughs) That's what we all think anyway. (laughs) But no, that women can't be ordained either, you know? And, And the church loves to say uh, you can't be in leadership. You're not really meant to be an elder. So go be a deacon. And even though like deacons should, we should all think of deacons as an ordained order, an order that is equivalent with elders. We all know that that's not how it actually happens on the ground. 
And then if they don't, if they say that you can't be an elder, so go be a deacon. Well, you really shouldn't be a deacon. You should go be a home missioner. Well, like, I don't even know if you need to have like something you do, but can you please still continue to put on the potluck and uh, care for all the children and make all the music and show up at the church at times that nobody else will to make sure that things are in order and decorate everything so we have a pleasant place to be in? Yeah, I think that, I think there's a lot of holdovers from previous ways of doing church when there was a lot more wiggle room and Mm -hmm. you know women were working in the home so you could just use women um and gay people probably couldn't find a lot of employment once somebody found they were gay and not that the church you know welcomed them with open arms but uh just took them in because we needed somebody to do the work that they were that they were gonna do i mean i think that we we it's so hard to investigate our communities for what is good in them and what needs to grow in them. And so we, we sanitize it and we have a consultant come in or we make up a program or the conference does some type of evaluation where we find the right words to say that mean that we don't have to change at all. But when real change comes our way, I think we fight it tooth and nail, even though we asked for it. Um, and it's really only with, a strong community where we have built trust and we have experienced things together that we are able to move forward and do difficult things. Mm-hmm. I agree. And, and I, these are not my people. They were your people. I, I, I think that um, if communities really are like that, if they're exhausted, if they fail to have trust, then I really don't care all that much if they go away. You know, I hear it. I you hear know, it. And, and like, I, I get it. Like, if they were my people, I think things would be very different, you know, because you mess yourself within it and that's how it's supposed to be. But um, uh, the the parlor trick of conjuring uh, small town America and its way of life disappearing usually just at this point just makes me shrug. And I go, well, the thing you're describing isn't a real thing anyway. And insofar right. as it is a real thing, part of the reason why these towns fall apart is because people just aren't that very nice to each other and that people are not willing to suffer for each other, not willing to do work for each other. They're not, not willing to, they're not willing to be people together. Yeah. You know, and, and, and then they get mad when people move into a community and are willing to do that. And um, they find themselves excluded. Yeah. Because, well, they aren't ready to suffer for them. You know, usually um, community uh, when oh god, I've been reading so many dumb shit uh, for for comps and for stuff like that. Like I was about to say something very stupid, so ignore me on that. Um, I was going to say something really dumb about German idealism that wasn't going to be helpful. <laughs> wasn't going to be helpful even a little bit. <laughs> at all nobody's tuning in for the hot german idealism content well Fichte <laughs> teaches us you know <laughs> according to shelling um yeah i uh, i like the case study you've kind of presented i i think that my conclusion over it is really is really this it's that a lot of times when we talk about communities, we are invoking an idea of a community or an illusion or a fiction. And the real communities that we know of and are a part of, I think, are, are communities of this sort of mutual submission and mutual suffering. 
with each other. And when, when we define communities in that way, we discover that a lot of the communities that we think we know are a part of uh, don't really exist. You know, I, I think that a lot of church communities, that's not really what they're about. I think mm. a lot of like kind of small town communities, that, that's also not really what they're about. And I think this is because for a few reasons, I think it's because things are so bad that people a lot of times just don't have the capacity to do that kind of stuff. And a lot of times I also think it's because eh, people just don't want to, you know, they just, they just don't care. They, they, uh, there's probably for a lot of reasons, but why keep, why keep for me, why keep obsessing over the why? Like I'm interested in that, and I and I I kind of want to know why, but but obsessing over the why means that people continue to get hurt in community when we're not just sort of building community. Why do people not want to be a part of community? Why are people supposedly in a community but don't want to do work for it, don't want to suffer for it, don't want to don't want to be generous with it, don't want to see it for what it is, you know, and, and try to make it better? Eh, I don't care why they don't want to. I don't care why they don't want to. Not anymore. Not at my worst. <laughs> at my best, yeah. I care a little better. But at, at my at my worst, at my lowest, I I just shrug and I think about Larry. Oh, Larry. Larry. Larry from Barbersville just says it like it is. Yeah. Well, and you know, like we can continue forward without Larry, but I I think it's a matter of finding those wins that, that enable us to go forward and find the people who do want to do the work. And they are, I think, fewer than what previous generations might've taught us. Right. Um, But I think they're there. And I think that you just have to find who you can really work with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the most heartbreaking thing about my work uh, as a pastor is I thought I had, you know, I thought I had people who were willing to, to do hard work and to, to do leadership in a different way and um, be the body of Christ in the community in a different way. Uh, and it turned out that like when push came to shove, no, they weren't, uh, which you know, is a, a way that I misunderstood and asked for more than they could provide. And that means that I wasn't communicating well. And I understand that. But but it's really heartbreaking when you mm-hmm. think that like you 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 think that you have wins that the community did not actually see as wins. Yeah. And it's hard to come back from that. So it is hard. It is. Yeah. Hard. Let me say one more thing. OK. And then maybe we can be done. Yeah. I'm preaching on the. uh um, uh, the guy who owns a vineyard mm-hmm. and sends representatives to the tenants of the vineyard and the people in the vineyard kill him, kill the representatives and then eventually kill the guy's son. Remember that parable? Yeah, I think it's called the parable of the wicked tenants. Yeah, yeah whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Listeners, I don't like the Bible. Actually, I do. Future employer, if you're listening, <laughs> I really like it. All right. You know, in our first episode with Shemaya, when I said that you didn't like the Bible, you were like, now, hold on. I like the Bible fine. So we have it on record that you do actually like it. That's exactly right. Please, please hire me. Anyway, um, (laughs) the at the end of that parable, when Jesus is done telling it and starts sort of his teaching where the scripture starts teaching on the parable, you know, they the they talk about how the religious authorities recognize that Jesus is saying that they're the wicked tenants, right? And that 
they are killing God's representatives and then eventually kill Christ. You know, like, like it's, it's a parable of lots of different, you know, layers. And at the end of it, I think Jesus is the one who says this. I think Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and it will be given to the tax collectors and the prostitutes mm. for they saw it when you didn't. Yeah. And that because, because a scripture is so explicit about who the wicked tenants are, I, I, there is, I don't think there's really another way of interpreting some of this, right? Like friends, religious people, if we continue to not just not listen to God's representatives like Christ, if we continue to not terribly care about, you know, what God cares about, not terribly care about piety in its fullest sense, you know, not terribly care about being the church in the world and in the mission of the church, but instead take refuge in our religion or take refuge in our old ways or, or, or become this insular group that is just not interested. Um, I just think God is just going to take everything away from us. And God's just going to form his community, God's community with not us. And I think that for a lot of churches, I think it's already happened. Yeah. I I saw a quote today from Rachel Hold Evans that I was that like the people you exclude today are the people that God will choose to lead the church tomorrow because like God's love exists on the margins. And I think that's that is maybe a more palatable is not the word I want. That's a different way of phrasing this same concept that like I I really think that it's not been I don't want to to lay the same level of vindictiveness maybe or 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 anger that um that the prophets do you know but mm-hmm. but it, it really is just the practical choice right oh my people have ceased to listen listen to me I will go find other people because of course why wouldn't you you know like you're the god of the universe who is reconnecting always and every time over again with humanity as humanity listens to you why would you not just Go find somebody else. And why not find it amongst the people who are most ready to receive your love, you know, which are the people yeah. on the margins and the people that the church has excluded? It just makes sense. It just makes sense. I agree. What does Kitamori teach us, Japanese theologian Kitamori? All forms of human pain are a symbol of the pain of God. Mm. And if Christian people are not interested, and suffering for others, then how can they be a symbol of God's essence? Yeah. Right? So get out there and suffer, friends. Make sure you do that. Uh, <laughs> sh- should I wrap us up? Yeah. Okay. Friends, thanks for listening. This has been a mini-sode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Spanks Reebok and the Dude, and we will see you next time. What the Hell is a Pastor is a part of the Disruptive Disciples Podcast Network. Our theme song is written by Joe Shomolf, performed by Joe Shomolf, Ian Uriola, and Paul Uriola, and produced by Paul Uriola. 
find us across the internet at WTHIAP or visit us at WTHIAP.com to get connected to our Patreon, merch, and some other stuff. Thanks for listening. And remember, friends, Ethan gave me all the money in his wallet.